Today's focus could be a daunting one, but I feel like we're far enough in the series that we're ready to address it. The reality that when we're in the midst of suffering, others are watching. The reason it could be daunting is because it can feel like it puts a pressure on us to perform perfectly at a time when we feel like we have no capacity to do so. But what's actually happening is an opportunity. An opportunity to see God work in ways that are abundantly more than we could ask for or imagine, that are beyond our capacity or even awareness. When we seek God in the midst of suffering, it can actually be planting seeds that become more fruitful than we'll ever realize. Our guest, Xane, shares a story about how small seeds planted when he was a kid have impacted who he is today and inspire him to lead by example for others. And while in the midst of suffering, we might not even know how to function well, God is with us and intends to do amazing things in the midst, not just for you, but for those who are watching. You're listening to episode 149 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I thank you for the ways that you create space and time. Xane and I don't know each other. We've never met. And there's so many reasons that we might not have been able to connect even today that you made a way. You created this space. And so we want to give this space back to you. We want to give you our thoughts, our words, our questions, our answers. We want to give it all to you. We invite you to guide us because we believe that you could do abundantly more with it than we could on our best days. And so we thank you in advance for how we believe you will work. And we just invite you to move however you want to move. I just pray in holy name. Amen. So Xane, I'm really excited that you and I get to talk. And what's funny is we've already had a number of factors try to get in the way of this conversation from technical issues to mics or headphones not working. But as I mentioned to you, for me, that's an indicator that probably means this is going to be a good conversation. So I'm excited to talk. But before we jump in, for anyone listening, what would you want them to know about who you are? Oh, goodness. Well, I'd want them to know that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a husband. I'm a father. And I think those things come before any other title that you would have. You know, there's a lot of things you can do in business. In our society, a lot of times people say, well, what do you do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And people immediately answer with their occupation. And in truth, I think our occupation probably needs to be more of a detail to what our main purpose is and our main focus is. You know, I think I'm a husband and father and believer before I'm whatever my occupation is, right? Yeah. So great question. Yeah. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Yeah. One of the ways that I like to put it is my primary occupation is ambassador of Christ and everything else falls under that umbrella because I'm tracking with you. You know, when you and I connected earlier and I shared with you that I'm currently doing this season focused on sitting and suffering, there are a number of things that you have navigated in life. But what I've really appreciated is I think the way that you put it is sometimes what could be perceived as a weakness or hardship can actually become our superpower. And so I say we just jump in. As you've been thinking about this conversation focused on the exciting topic of suffering, what's God been bringing to your heart? Well, I'll tell you this. I really do believe what you said is true. I believe that when we have really hard things happen to us, many times we can ask, well, why? And sometimes people feel victimized. Why me? Why is this happening to me? I really do believe that our pain, some of the stuff that happens to us that's most painful is really God working in us to make it our superpower. It becomes super strong later on, and it allows us to serve others in ways that we may not have thought possible. 
Now, let me share a story with you right now, if you're okay with that. When I was young, I used to like to draw trees and I would draw them with every branch, every little twig. I'd even draw each individual leaf with the little veins in the leaves. Maybe you can imagine a tree with dozens of leaves. Well, I went to school and I saw how the other children drew trees and some of them drew it with just two little lines and a little poofy cloud Mm -hmm. on top. And there's nothing wrong with drawing trees like that. But when I saw how the other children drew trees... I stopped drawing them the way I used to, and I started drawing them the way the other children did. Mm. I found out later that my mom, when she saw this, she actually shed a tear. She cried. And you can imagine why, Mm. you know, probably I was trying to conform a little bit to be like the other children, and that kind of made her sad. Well, fast forward a few years, I was at a Little League game. I know there's a few different ways to do Little League. You can either be good and actually hit the ball. If you were pathetic like I was, you would just hold the bat out and the ball would hit it and drop. It's called a bunt. Mm-hmm. I had one bunt the entire season. Wow. Anyway, I'm not here to tell you how pathetic I was. There was something <laughs> interesting that happened after this game. I came home from the ball game and my mom complained of a very severe headache. And that wasn't typical of her. It wasn't typical for her to get headaches. My dad became concerned because at one point, I think she may have said that it was worse than childbirth, Mm -hmm. but it was so bad that my dad said, we're going to take mom to the hospital. Well, I remember giving my mom a hug in the front room of our home, telling her that I loved her. And then they drove away. I went to my uncle. My uncle and aunt happened to be visiting us at the time. And I went to my uncle and I was kind of a little anxious. And this wasn't normal, of course, for this to happen. I went to him and I said, is my mom going to die? And he said, no, your mom's not going to die. She probably just has a migraine. And I said, do you promise my mom's not going to die? And he goes, I promise. She's going to be fine. Take it easy. Relax. Things are going to be okay. And I wanted to believe him. So I went downstairs in the basement of our home. I climbed up on my bunk bed and I started reading a book about squirrels. It was starting to get late. So I wanted to kind of stay up and read. Mm -hmm. I waited for my parents to get home and I waited and they didn't get home. I probably stayed up, I'm guessing, until probably two in the morning or so. Eventually I fell asleep. I woke up the next morning and I was still feeling kind of anxious. I went out to this door to my room and I opened the door. I was anxious to see my mom and dad. I looked out of this door and there was this long family room again that you could see. And I looked out, I could see my dad on the other side of this room, but something was different. My mom was not there. Instead, there was a neighbor and a friend and another neighbor and a friend and another neighbor and another neighbor. It seemed like half the neighborhood was in our home. As I walked forward towards my dad, I could see he'd been crying. He had tears on his cheeks. And as I walked even closer, I could see that he was trying not to cry, but he kind of gathered the children together. He said words that I'll never forget, trying to choke his tears back. He said, I think our mom is going to leave us. And I put two and two together and I went into this really big panic. I said, dad, dad, we got to do something. We got to do something. We got to say a prayer. What can we do? What can we do? We got to do something to help mom. Well, what had happened is my mom had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage, which means that a blood vessel in her brain had burst. And she was now brain dead mm. at the hospital, being kept alive by a life support system. Mm. A couple of days later, I remember being at the hospital. I could see my mom laying there on the bed. She had tubes coming out of her nose and she had all kinds of medical equipment hooked up to her. She couldn't breathe on her own because her brain wasn't functioning and her chest would rise and fall with the help of this respirator. You know, being an eight-year-old boy, I was really scared. And I'd had this good life up until this happened, but it was difficult. I mean, I was scared. It came time that they decided to take her off the life support system. There was really nothing they could do. She was brain dead. When they took her off, she kind of crinkled up. She turned bluish Mm -hmm. as the life and the oxygen left her body. And I remember I was afraid to give her a kiss. I kind of wanted to, but she didn't look like my mom. So I went and faked one. Mm -hmm. I kissed the air a couple inches away and I walked out. 
you know, I was eight years old. I watched my mom die. I do got to tell you, though, after I walked out of the room, there was an anesthesiologist in the room. He was a friend of our family's. And he said, you know, X, everyone calls me X. He said, after you left the room, your mom went from being kind of crinkled up and bluish to where she spread her arms almost like angel's wings, almost like she was coming into a beautiful place. Hmm. But here's my question for you. You know, I watched my mom die. How do you think I draw trees now? The answer is I draw them the way my mom would want me to, the way I see them. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm sharing with you, and I've shared this story other places, but I'm sharing with you right now in my heart, figuratively, I'm drawing trees the way I see them right now, like on this podcast. And even though I haven't given my mom a hug now in over 36 years, there's something that's almost as good as giving your mom a hug and is feeling her influence. We talk about suffering or pain. I got to tell you, for many years, I had some abandonment issues. I had some real struggle. You know, it was much more difficult in family life. All kinds of things happened. It took me probably decades to kind of figure out. Mm -hmm. But I now see, I guess you could say right now, I'm kind of on a mission to let parents know what a huge influence they have on their kids. I could tell you lots of things, just little things my mom said or did that now profoundly affect me, even though she's been gone. Mm -hmm. Things she'd said or did, just little comments that profoundly affect me. And I want parents to know what a great opportunity it is to be a dad or a mom mm -hmm. and to have the ultimate career of being a parent because you're going to influence generations. And what we're doing at work is going to die probably within a decade or two, maybe sooner, maybe a little later, but it's not going to last anywhere near as long as being a parent. How can God use our pain to serve others? And, you know, C.S. Lewis, who I'm a huge fan of, C.S. Lewis says, you thought you were going to be made into a little cottage. But presently, God starts knocking down walls and he starts tearing down this. And he's like, what in the world is he doing? It doesn't seem to make any sense. But what he's really doing is he's changing, you know, he's running out a courtyard here and running up a tower there. He goes, he's making you into a palace. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. Well, he's making you into a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. Mm -hmm. It's basically these painful things where our walls are getting knocked down and we think, what in the world is happening? Yeah. It's actually to help us be stronger and serve others later. And I hope that in some way, the pain of losing my mom when I was young can help other parents realize what a wonderful influence they have, the immense opportunity it is to be a parent, how parents, I truly believe, have the ultimate career. Mm -hmm. Nothing you do in business is going to last as long, have as profound an influence as the kind of person you are at home. Yeah. That's the good news and the bad news. So we got to be careful, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, you bring an interesting topic into this conversation of suffering. Because there's been many conversations from the person who's been in the midst of suffering, a medical issue or a loss or something like that. I've had conversations with folks who were more in that caregiver role, and they're sharing in the suffering of others that they could just walk away from, but they're choosing to stay at the table. But you said something interesting, and it taps into another piece that's been coming into it. So you talked about the influence that parents have and the reality that the ways that parents engage, the ways that they love can actually extend beyond them. Your mom is influencing you today, even though she's been gone for 36 years. Right. And the other idea that has come up often is this idea of seeds. The Apostle Paul says, I planted the seeds, Apollos watered it, and God made it grow. And in this series, we've talked about it in terms of sometimes God may invite us into something that we don't see the fruit of it, but God's using us. God's using our story. God's using our suffering to do something beyond us. And there may be fruit, even if we never see it. And what you've just brought to the table is this invitation for parents to own this incredible opportunity to love 
invest in, raise their children in a way that can plant seeds that they may never see the fruit of. Let me ask this. You noted we've got to be careful, right? Because <laughs> we have an influence, whether it's positive or negative, and usually it's a mix of both because we're human. But how do we position ourselves as parents in such a way that we can be a conduit of God planting those seeds? It's a great question. And I'm not sure I know the answers, but I have a couple thoughts come to mind. I think first is to just realize that it really is true. Let me give you just a couple examples. Let's back up just a little bit and then let's go forward. You know, I live in the United States of America. And this is a really obvious example, but the reason I live in the United States of America is because I had some ancestors hundreds of years ago who decided to get on a boat and come to America. Well, that happened many, many years ago. They've been gone for generations. That choice that they made affects my education, affects the language I speak, it affects my religion, affects my economic opportunities. It's profoundly, profoundly affecting me today. Mm. Hundreds of years later, this choice. Now, that's an obvious one. It's kind of geographic. Mm -hmm. But there's other choices they made that are not as obvious. Let me give you an example. Were they really keyed in? Were they patient? Were they kind? Were they drunk? And those kind of things can be passed down for generation after generation too. Even though you can't see them, there's not as obvious as the choice of sailing across the ocean. Mm -hmm. They're still there. And so I'm profoundly affected by my parents, 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 parents. Here's the next thing I want you to know. Ask yourself this question. Do you know what your great, great grandfather did for a living or great, great grandmother? Do you know what they did for a living? Mm. I've asked this question to numerous people and most people can't tell you. Some people can't. Sometimes they say, well, they were a farmer or they were something, but most people can't tell you. And I got to tell you, here's the bad news <laughs> or the good news. Your kids, 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 they're not going to care what you did for work. You're, they're going to care about as much as you care what your great-great-grandfather did for a living. Mm -hmm. But the kind of parent they were is affecting you profoundly in ways that you probably don't even comprehend. In other words, we don't comprehend that I speak English because somebody decided to come to America and that's what they speak. Mm -hmm. Here's the next thing. Once you realize that it's a big deal, it's kind of incumbent upon us to try our best to be as good as we can as a parent. You know, my brother, he's a smart guy and he went to Harvard, he majored in education, but he told me about this book. It's called The Power of Positive Parenting by Glenn Latham. And the theory behind it, you know, you were talking about seeds. Mm -hmm. He basically in this book says, behaviors are like seeds and attention is like water. And if you want to help your children develop good behaviors, give them attention for the things they're doing right. And he goes into detail about how this can help, you know. It was a good book. It's changed the way I parented. It helped me realize, you know, I've got to catch my kids doing something right because it's the most effective way. Well, just a little blessing like that where I learned a new technique, a new skill, a new principle about parenting that I didn't know before. I think that God blesses us as we anxiously seek to make being a good parent a priority Yeah. as we realize how important it is and try our best to make it as good as we can. Yeah. There's a verse I came across earlier today, Exodus 26. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. And this was in an email from a ministry that actually focuses on families and equipping parents. And this is something that they've been focusing on this fall is this idea that our steps of faith, our steps of obedience actually have long-term reverberations, that God sees those and there's something that extends beyond it. And so there is something beautiful and important about it. But what's unique about what you're saying, you know, especially in American culture, it can get very academic. So it's this idea that there is a way to live. There's information. If you can convey that information and someone learns it, then they live it out. But I think what parents quickly learn is the kids don't necessarily always catch the information you throw at them, but they definitely catch how you live. 
how you respond, how you function. Yeah. What we're talking about is applicable for everyone. There may be somebody that's listening that's like, well, I'm not a parent yet, so I can check out. The reality that we're talking about is actually influential for everyone, and I'll come to that in a second. But what makes parenting so unique is whereas in other relationships, I can pick and choose for the most part when I interact with that person. If I'm having a bad day, I could choose to avoid them. If I'm having a great day, I can choose to spend more time with them, right? With your kids, awesome. <laughs> you don't get to choose. <laughs> yeah. If you're having a bad day, you still have to figure out how to navigate the frustrations. And the kids are seeing that. So no matter what I teach my kids directly about how to be patient or kind, if I'm in the midst of a season of suffering and I'm not responding well, I'm actually teaching them in that moment. Right. Or if I'm in the midst of a season of suffering and I'm not even thinking about them, but I am navigating in a healthy way, even though I'm not trying to intentionally say, all right, kids, did you see how I did that? They may still see that. Exactly. I mentioned this is good for everyone because even though for parents, the seed planting is as close to 24-7 as you can get in relationships, mm -hmm. we are all going to have interactions with people that on our end, we may never think much about it afterwards. But for them, that moment, that seed, witnessing how you interacted with suffering stuck with them. I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Two thoughts came to mind. Let me tell you something. You know, I've, I told you a little bit about my brother. And my brother really likes education. I like education. We're always constantly talking about it. And there was two thoughts that came to mind. First of all, let me tell you a conversation I had with my brother. We had this conversation where we thought, you know, what is the best way to educate somebody? I'm going to go back to this information piece and we're going to wrap it back around because mm -hmm. it was something you said about example that's really important. This idea came up that, well, what if you could follow around the person you want to be like? So let me just give you a business example. Let's say you wanted to be a hedge fund manager because hedge fund managers, I guess they're one of the highest paid people. So let's just say that's what you wanted to be. Right now, you'd have to go to school for a while. You'd have to take the GMAT. You'd have to go to an Ivy League school, come and work for 20 years. And if you're really lucky, you could maybe be a hedge fund manager 20, 30 years from now or maybe a little less or more. But what if you were just able to follow around the person you wanted to be like in a career? So like, what if you could just follow around the top hedge fund manager in the world and you could just sit there and watch what he or she does and what he or she says and how they handle meetings, when they buy and sell certain companies or when they buy and sell and when do they invest, when do they don't, how do they hire and fire? And you could just sit there for a couple of years and just watch them. Don't you think that you could learn a lot more quickly than maybe jumping through the traditional hoops where we could do this? So as my brother and I were talking about this, we thought, you know, one of the best ways to learn would just be to follow around the person you want to be like, mm -hmm. right? You want to be a hedge fund manager, follow them around for two or three years and see what they do. And you could probably learn really well. And there's even some movements in the business world where they're catching on to this. We're like, we can train people more if we kind of have mentoring programs and things. But after this conversation with my brother, I was sitting at a traffic light and this thought came to me, it just hit me. I said, you know what? The best way to teach people has been around for thousands of years. It's called parenting. <laughs> we literally have little people follow us around who want to be like us. Well, fast forward just a little bit. Years ago, back during the last financial crisis in 2008, 2009, I was actually selling homes for a home builder mm. and the market had just crashed. And I was sitting in a model home and there used to be a lot of people coming in and there was almost nobody coming in. And the company was kind of concerned and I could tell that things were kind of getting shaky. Yeah. We ended up going out and trying to find some buyers because the situation was so dire. They'd actually sent us out to knock on these apartment doors to ask if we could sell homes. Okay. We actually had a lot of success doing it. That's another story. But I remember we knocked on this one door and again, they sent us out in twos just for liability reasons. And this little kid answered the door. 
And the little kid said, my mom told me to tell you that she can't come to the door because she's in the bathroom. And then from right behind the door, you could hear the mom say, okay, now, sweetheart, shut the door. (laughs) And the mom was obviously not in the bathroom. She was standing behind the door. And at first I laughed, you know, I thought that was a funny story. Later on, I thought about it though. As I thought about it, I thought, here is a mom I don't think that that mom got up in the morning and said, today, I'm going to teach my kid to lie. Mm -hmm. I'm going to teach them that if they don't want to deal with something, they can just lie. I don't think that was on her checklist. Mm -hmm. I don't think she said, I'm going to use the most powerful way to teach people, which is through my example, to lie. And to your point, what you said, you know, we have these moments where we're always being watched and that could be great news if we're doing it well. And if we're not, it could be horrible news, right? And so- it's kind of this what Christ said. He said, you know, cast the moat out of your own eye first. What is it that we need to work on internally so that we can be the best version of ourselves and help our children see that good example? Mm-hmm. Whether we're conscious of it or not, we're teaching something. Hopefully we're not teaching incorrect principles. Hopefully we're teaching correct principles that will lead them to Christ, to lead them to do good things in the world. Yeah, as you're saying that, what it makes me think is there could be somebody listening that now is starting to get a little stressed out <laughs> because they're feeling this pressure. Right. I thought that I was just living my life and making my decisions, but you're telling me that there are people watching me. You're telling me that there are people that are going to be impacted, whether I realize it or not, by my actions. Now I feel a pressure to perform perfectly. Right? And that's a very real feeling that people will have. Sure. What we're actually being invited to is not a pressure to perform perfectly, but an invitation to do what you and I started this conversation talking about. One of our primary roles, our purpose is to be an ambassador of Christ, to be a conduit of God's love. And he's not expecting us to be perfect, but he's inviting us to represent him to the best of our ability in any given moment. And so there's this tension, right, that we can feel between the pressure of perfection and the opportunity of being a conduit of God's love. And the good news is the example that we have to follow includes a whole lot of folks who didn't do it well. I mean, the disciples often made mistakes. In fact, everybody in scripture, except for one, (laughs) made mistakes. That's right. You talked about this idea of the best way to learn is to follow someone. You know, Hebrews 11 talks about that. Look to the heroes of the faith and look how they function. The apostle Paul says it often, look at my way of life and follow how I'm doing it. But Jesus is at the top of the list. He invites us to watch how he lived, watch how he navigated hardship, watch how he navigated suffering, and then follow his lead. But the caveat for him is he knows how imperfectly we'll do it. And so he says, the good news is, is I'm sending a helper (laughs) for you to be able to do abundantly more than you could have on your own. How can we get to this place where we can embrace that invitation to be a conduit of God's love imperfectly? and not fall into the crippling fear of, can I perform perfectly? It's a great question. It's a great question. What do you think? (laughs) Tossing it back. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) what parents quickly have to learn is you just keep stepping forward. Before the first child arrives, you have this pressure of, oh my goodness, now I'm responsible for this human being. Everything hinges on me. And what if I'm not ready to be a parent? Mm -hmm. Most parents, I would say, on that front end, feel that pressure. Right. When you have more than one kid, you start to learn, oh, I still don't know if I can really do this as well as I wish I could, but I can do this. And by the third kid, if they eat something off the floor, you're not freaking out anymore because you're like, oh, the other kids ate stuff off the floor. They were fine, right? And it's this idea of realizing perfection isn't 
attainable, but thriving can be. Mm-hmm. And the way there is to keep stepping forward in the same way in life, perfectly seeking God, perfectly living by God's statutes. One of the big stories of scripture is how often entire people groups failed to do that. And God was still loving and merciful and gracious in the midst of that. The disciples, when they failed to do that, Jesus still extended a hand of love. The early church, when they failed to do that, the apostle Paul constantly communicated with love even if there was rebukes in the midst, because I think they all realized that the goal isn't perfection on this end, it's faithfulness, it's continuing to step. And it's ultimately knowing that we can't do it without God. I think it's the truest parents. I think it's the truest people. We can't do it without God. That's exactly right. And I 100% agree with you on that. You know, a couple of thoughts came to mind. My mom had this thing she used to say, said, you know, no matter the question, love is the answer. And it sounds a little bit trite. It sounds a little bit oversimplified, but if you think about it, or maybe don't think about it. <laughs> I think most of what happens in the long run, if you look at it from that perspective, love really is the answer. I've thought a lot about that scripture. You brought up the issue of perfection. There's a point in the Sermon on the Mount where Christ says, be therefore perfect. But if you look at the context he said it in, it's almost like it's this last line of the paragraph where he's saying, you know, you've heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you and despitefully use you that you may be the children of your father in heaven. For he sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And he said, he loves people who are trying to do right and he loves people who don't. When he says, be therefore perfect, it's like perfect in love, right? Mm -hmm. As you were saying, like by loving our enemies and kind of circling back, I wonder if we could show our kids that we can love our enemies. We can set that example, loving people who despise us. Mm -hmm. You're right. We're not here to try to make people feel stressed out. And at the same time, there is this natural state of tension almost between we have a conscience that tells us what's right. And the truth is none of us are living up to it Mm -hmm. completely. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? At some level, all of us know kind of how things are supposed to be. And yet none of us are living up to it. Mm -hmm. I do not understand what I do because what I hate to do, I do. And what I love to do, I do. (laughs) Right. So we need God's grace to help us with that. These are great questions, and I'm glad you brought it up in that context. Thank you. Well, ultimately, what we're talking about is opportunity. And it brings us back to this idea of our suffering becoming our superpower, because our default assumption of suffering is it's a bad thing to be avoided. Our default feeling of something that brings hardship or brings pain is it's bad and to be eliminated from our life. A superpower, our gut instinct is, oh, that's something I want when we're kids. We're like, oh man, I wish I had superpowers. But as you were talking, what it made me think of is the storylines that you'll often see in comics where somebody is suddenly imbued with a superpower that they did not choose and that they did not want and they actually want to get rid of. The most recent one I can think of is the She-Hulk series that just came out on Disney Plus and She-Hulk is suddenly imbued with Hulk powers and she feels like it's ruined her life. She doesn't want it. Mm. What she has to do is come to a place of recognizing the opportunity within the powers. In the same way, we can have these seasons of suffering in our life and we can see it as a bad thing that's ruined everything. But if what we're saying is true, that God isn't careless and that God knows the plans he has for us, that God is aware of when we're suffering and if he doesn't take it away, then he might be up to something more, then there may actually be an opportunity within that. So How can we position ourselves better to recognize the opportunity? Because I'm sure in your life, you know, when you were eight, that wasn't the last time you suffered. And so how have you learned to embrace this concept of it being your superpower and how can others do the same? Oh, man, that's a good question. 
Well, two thoughts come to mind. Oh, well, at least one thought. <laughs> one thought is, if you look at Christ, did Christ have what many of us would term a good life mm. in modern society? I mean, a lot of people are like, well, to have a good life, I've got to be successful and I've got to have a good career and I've got to have a nice big house and some nice cars. And that's the good life. And maybe that's not the good life. Think about Christ. He was born in a place where animals eat. Mm. He was a poor carpenter. He suffered immense injustice. His suffering was immense. And yet Christ, of course, is the greatest of all. You know, if we're going through life thinking we've been robbed because we don't have all these things that people say we should need, mm -hmm. we're going to go around thinking we've been robbed if we think that we deserve and need to have a good life. Right. And I think part of that is just saying, you know what? Maybe it's okay to suffer. Maybe God has a plan. And maybe if I can just trust him and say, okay, it's really hard right now. It's really bad, but I can trust God that he knows what he's doing mm -hmm. and that somehow he is going to give me superpowers that I can help with later on. Mm -hmm. My opinion is that life doesn't get easier, but with God's help, you get better. Mm -hmm. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Things get harder. It's not that the thing has changed. It's that you get better with God's help, right? Mm -hmm. The truth is I don't know all the answers, <laughs> but I do know when suffering comes and it will, if you can teach your kids and say, you know what? there probably will be some really hard things that happen in your life. Yeah. And when they happen, trust God that he knows what he's doing because they will. Yeah. Trust God that there's a reason. And I don't know what all the reasons are, but you'll know. And God will show you in his way why he's letting you do this. Jesus Christ is the greatest of all. He suffered, but he opened the door for us to come back. His atonement was the key to everything. And it was through that suffering. And if we can realize that that's kind of the pattern, I think, suffering precedes wonderful and great things. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's say there's somebody listening who feels like they're currently in a season of suffering because of a similar space that you were in, that they are on the verge of or have lost a loved one. If you could say something to them right now, what would you want to say? Hmm. I would say it may be hard now, but if you let God, he will make that suffering in ways that you can serve people in ways you never thought possible. You'll be able to be a light and serve others and help others because of it in ways you never thought possible and trust God. He knows what he's doing. When we suffer, it's God making room for more joy to come. It's like you're almost being hollowed out so you can be filled with joy later on and love later on and be able to serve people in ways you never thought possible. That's my opinion. Yeah. I like that visual. That's a really good visual. You know, if somebody wanted to connect with you or the things that you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I've got a funny first name. It's <laughs> Xan. You can go to xane.com. You spell it E-K-S-A-Y-N. I'll say it again because it's hard to remember. E-K-S-A-Y-N.com. Because almost nobody has my name, it's really easy to optimize on Google. <laughs> That's so. fantastic. And as we close out, is there anything else that God's putting in your heart that you feel led to share? If you think that everybody else is having the good life, you're probably wrong. I've got to tell you this. One thing I know probably about almost everybody, in fact, everybody listening to this podcast has a burden that they have, a battle that most people don't know about. Mm -hmm. And if you can treat people like they have a battle that you can't see, you'll be right. <laughs> okay. I'll share a battle that I had. My daughter, Cheyenne, was a beautiful angel baby. And she had really soft, dark hair. She had soft, deep brown eyes. She was really, really calm 
Sometimes she was so calm that she would look up at me. I'd have to stop what I was doing, just kind of gaze back at her eyes because there was this feeling of calmness. It's almost like she was looking for something in my eyes. And I just have to stop and stare and kind of lock eyes and look back at her in this really calm way. Well, fast forward a little bit. I was sitting in my car on the side of the road. I got a phone call from a stranger. The stranger's voice said, is this X.A. Anderson? And I said, yes. And they said, your daughter has drowned. Hmm. You need to come to the hospital. And I said, what? And they said, your daughter has drowned. You need to come to the hospital. You know, I don't know exactly how that conversation ended. I don't remember. Somehow I drove to the hospital. Somehow I found a way to park. I walked in and I saw my nine-month-old baby daughter on a, on a hospital bed. Mm. And she had tubes coming out of her nose. And that wasn't the first time I'd seen someone I loved with tubes coming out of their nose. And I mm. walked in and I heard someone in the background say the words brain dead. That wasn't the first time I'd heard those words. And there were a lot of people in that room who were not calm. But I walked in and I just put my hand on her shoulder. And I got to tell you, when I, my hand touched her shoulder, in that moment, I knew she wasn't going to make it. But somehow I felt calm. Hmm. Anyway, I, I still need a little bit of clarification. I went over to one of the EMTs in the room and I said, I'm a big boy. I want to know what's going to happen to my daughter. And he said, well, she's probably going to make a really good donor. Eventually, we had to take a life flight to a specialized hospital. They put my daughter on the plane. And while we were flying along over to the specialized hospital, I could see they were respirating my daughter with this bulb. And that wasn't the first time I'd seen someone I love with needing help breathing. But there was a moment where I was on that plane. I could feel the darkness for a moment. And I just said, please, God, help me not to become bitter. Mm. Help me. And you know, I haven't been better. It's blessed with that. We went up, went to the hospital. Lots of things happened. And I won't go into detail, but anyway, it came time where they needed to take someone else I love off of life support. And they put my daughter in my arms and I just held her. She actually could breathe just a little bit because she had a little bit of brainstem functioning. But as I held her, she slowly stopped. I think it's so important for people to realize that life is shorter than you think, to love people, to choose to love people. I want to share one more thing. I feel inclined to share one more thing, and I'm going to tell you. There was a guy named Stephen Covey. He was the guy who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I'm going to paraphrase a story he told. After a conference, somebody came up to him and said, I don't love my wife anymore. Mm. And it kind of caught Stephen Covey off guard. And he looked at the guy and said, well, then love her. <laughs> And the guy said, I don't think you heard me. I've fallen out of love with my wife. She's fallen out of love with me. We have three kids. We're probably heading for a divorce. And it kind of concerns me. And Stephen Covey looked at the guy and said, you know what? If you're not feeling it, that would be a good reason to love her. <laughs> and the guy said, how do you love someone you don't love? And Stephen Covey looked at him and said, you know what, my friend? You're acting like love is a feeling. Love isn't a feeling. Love is a verb. <laughs> it's an action you do. But if you do the verb, the feeling will follow. In other words, if you go home and you do something nice for your wife that shows you love her, you do the dishes or you take out the trash or you give her a back rub or a foot rub or you give her some time alone with the kids, it may take a while, but you'll feel love for her. And one of the things I think is important, some people say, well, I don't love people. I don't feel love for them. And if that's the case, I think it's important to realize that we can lead our feelings with our actions. If we're not feeling it for our spouse, we're not feeling it. I think the key is to say, you know what? 
I'm going to do my best. We're not talking about being perfection. I'm not trying to stress anyone out here, but I'm saying I'm going to do my best to act loving until the feeling follows. My thing would be this. If you can see everybody as if they have a burden that you don't see and then just choose to love them, that's the answer. You could say, well, how do I love people I don't feel like I love? You just choose. In 2 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul is trying to encourage Timothy knowing the hardships that lie ahead. He says this starting in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is this. He recognizes that Timothy has been watching him, has been observing his movements, his words, his reactions, and his responses. And regardless of what the Apostle Paul has been overtly teaching him, these observations have been teaching Timothy so much more. Paul is at peace, though, because he knows who he has been observing. As he puts it in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So what Paul is inviting Timothy to is to continue to watch him, to continue to observe him, to see how he responds in the midst of suffering, because the Apostle Paul is continuing to watch Christ, reflecting on how Christ responded in the midst of suffering and doing likewise. Exane spent some time talking about love and how we can think of love as a feeling when it is really an action, and how the answer in the midst of that is to make the choice to love despite how we feel. In the same way, knowing how to honor God and seek Him in the midst of suffering can seem impossible because we're just not feeling it. But the same tactic can apply here. Make the choice to seek God, to observe Him, and to step towards Him, and the rest will follow. Or as Matthew 6.33 puts it, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is what I want you to hear. As we said at the start, The idea that people are watching you in the midst of your suffering can seem daunting, but I want you to hear the opportunity here. That as you, to the best of your ability, seek God in the midst of your suffering, God could be using you to plant seeds that are going to produce incredible fruit. Your decision to seek God even if you aren't feeling it may inspire someone who didn't want to seek God. Your moments of seeing God at work, even if small, can give somebody hope that felt hopeless. In other words, God could choose to use you as an ambassador, as a light for those who feel like they are in darkness. And all you have to do is seek him in the midst. You don't have to look for the people. You don't have to invite them to watch. You simply have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Others are watching you in the midst of your suffering, but this is an exciting opportunity to make God known. All you have to do is seek God in the midst, take those steps forward, and ask yourself, where did you see God?
Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the person who doesn't want to read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com slash revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God? <laughs>